So our text for today is Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's take a moment and pray before we begin. Father, we are so thankful for your word, for your kingdom that uh, Christ began and Christ reigns over now. Father, we are also thankful for your Holy Spirit that opens these things up to us as we uh, study and as we seek to to understand uh, what you are telling us uh, through your 
through your holy scripture. So we pray that you'll give us today um, hearts that are thirsty for understanding and wisdom and uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, the year 2020, the year of clearer vision. We are at the end of one thing and the start of another, right? This is, a, this is kind of what Epiphany is about. <clears throat> Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, um, the coming of the Lord, the parousia, the unveiling, the revelation. You, you, know, you notice how all these things kind of all work together at the end of, and remember that uh, Advent is actually the beginning of the church year, right? Um, and so it's, it's just, it's interesting to me how all these things tie up. And so it's kind of fitting that we take a look now uh, as we're preparing to go into the, the year 2020 um, to take a look at the last chapter in the Bible. <clears throat> Appropriately, we have been hitting this theme pretty hard since Advent, I think. You've heard lots of, uh, lots of words from me about the coming of the Lord and the parousia and uh, all of that stuff. <clears throat> um, before going on in our study of Exodus, which we will do, we will go on in our study of Exodus, I want us to take a look at the last chapter of the, the, the last book in the Bible uh, in the light of all that we have learned. I want us to get a clearer vision of the kingdom of God. 2,020 years into the reign of Christ on earth. Anno Domini, right? The year of our Lord. We must remind ourselves of Mary's question, how will this be? We must remind ourselves of John's question, should we look for another? John was discouraged because from his perspective in prison with the religious leaders resisting Jesus at every turn and no sword in Jesus' hand, the whole message of the kingdom of God, which John himself preached, looked like it was coming to nothing, like the fire was being put out. John's fire was soon put out. He had his head cut off. <clears throat> Mary simply wondered, how can such a thing happen? <clears throat> Sometime around A.D. 69, the apostle John, imprisoned on the island of Patmos, as he says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he received a series of visions which he wrote down primarily for the churches which were the focus of his mission at that time, the seven churches of Asia. Um, I want to direct our attention here to Revelation chapter 1 real quick uh, because I want, to hear, want you to hear uh, what John says at the beginning of his book. <clears throat> Revelation 1, 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Your brother and partner in the tribulation, the seven churches of Asia. We know that those visions are full of apocalyptic language 
recall it was some years ago now, it's kind of, you might have forgotten a lot of it, but we did go through the book of Revelation, <clears throat> um, full of apocalyptic language um, that draws on many of the Old Testament prophets and the immediate context of those first century Christians living between Rome and Jerusalem. And we know that his visions describe the coming destruction of the old covenant world centered on Jerusalem and the coming of the kingdom of God. Thus, the authoritative and apostolic word of God to men ends, Revelation 22, like the ratification of the Constitution as the document by which we will live and govern our lives. 1960 years ago, 1960 years ago, that would be 70 AD, by the way. So, that's it. The scriptures end. Uh, it's been 1,960 years, right? We don't have any other, um, like, thus saith the Lord. Although we hear that all the time. The Lord told me, Lord, oh, oh, we need to write down scripture. We need a new book, a new book of scripture, right? Because the Lord told you. Um, but we mean something different, right? When we say today, the Lord told me, we mean the Holy Spirit's talking to me about things. And hopefully it's very consistent with with the scriptures, because the scriptures are the test. <clears throat> so what is the kingdom of God now, 1,960 years after A.D. 70, after the end uh, of the book of Revelation? <clears throat> Why so many years of struggle, of great advances and numerous declines? Is this the never-ending story? It's been a long time, right? <clears throat> Where is the church in 2020? Well, this is really too large of a topic. It really That's a seminar topic, actually. But our text gives us a glimpse. And so this is where I'm trying to get, uh, get our attention focused. Um, although all we can do is kind of get a glimpse of it right now. Bird's eye view. Um, <clears throat> but coming as it does at the end of one age and at the start of another. Okay? Um, so... I hope you see it with how this is kind of lining up since um, the end of the book of Revelation is sort of like New Year's Day. You know, it's like it's the end of one thing and the beginning of another. So it's a, it, the beginning of January is a perfect time to read Revelation 22. Okay? <clears throat> um, it's the end of one thing, the beginning of another. Um, okay, so... Um, okay, let me make sure I get all my questions lined up here. Um, oh, um, okay, so what is history moving towards, right? Okay, so you got all this stuff wrapped up in AD 70, and you got 1,960 years of other stuff happening. What is history moving towards? <clears throat> um, so let's look at what our brother John has to say. We're, uh, I'm just going to sort of run through a few headings real quick. You have headings in your Bible, um, probably section headings, like the first five verses in your Bible probably say the river of life. <clears throat> um, I have a few other divisions that uh, aren't exactly, they're not in mine anyway, but uh, so verses one through five, certainly the river of life. Six and seven, Jesus is coming. Eight and nine, don't worship angels. 10 and 11, to, 
to seal or not to seal. 12 through 15, ready or not, here I come. 16 and 17, Jesus the thirst quencher. 18 and 19, don't mess with this book. And verse 20, Jesus is coming soon. All right, did you get all that? Yeah, you guys are taking notes, right? <clears throat> the river of life, Jesus is coming. Don't worship angels to seal or not to seal. Ready or not, here I come. Jesus the thirst quencher. Don't mess with this book. Jesus is coming soon. Okay, that's Revelation 22. You'd like to, you'd like to think I'm done now, right? No, just getting started. <clears throat> okay, so uh, take a look here at uh, the first five verses, the river of life. Um, this is the last vision of John's apocalypse. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Um, so this is, he's, lots of other visions have passed. This is the last one in John's apocalypse. Although the book is not strictly chronological, this vision is the end result of all that has gone before. You can't have this the city of God coming down. You can't have the river flowing through the city until all that other stuff has happened. Okay, uh, So, uh, remember, although the book of Revelation is not strictly chronological, it kind of overlaps a little bit like this. Um, this, is, this is the end of uh, all the other visions. The new heaven and earth have been established. The new Jerusalem has come down out of heaven, and he has just described its perfection and its beauty. Remember, it is a cube, right? If you look at the chapter uh, 21, the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it's a cube, and uh, you know it would cover all, uh, the eastern United States and extend into outer space, and you'd have to have oxygen tanks to uh, to be there. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it is it is a uh, it is a type, it is a, a, a picture of perfection. And uh, it has come down out of heaven. <clears throat> now the angel shows him this river. He's described the temple to him. I'm not the temple. The city with all its dimensions and all the jewels and all that stuff. We need to look more closely at these themes of water, trees, and healing. So if you will, go back to Genesis 2. Because the beginning of the Bible has the same stuff going on. <clears throat> it's very interesting to me. Uh, there's this catchy title for a movie, or as a book first, I think. A river runs through it. I've never seen that or read the book or anything, but it's a catchy title, A River Runs Through It. I, that's, the, that's the Bible, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's the Bible, A River Runs Through It. I might need to see that movie just to see what it's about. Um, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2. Okay, so here what... The Lord says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. <clears throat> and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. 
Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, Uh, so we have a garden, we have a river, we have the tree of life. Um, Now turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel 47. Um, Several chapters, for several chapters, Ezekiel describes uh, an idealized uh, Jerusalem. Uh, It looks a little different than Solomon's temple and um, Herod's temple, the, um, what we call the, the second temple, uh, doesn't exactly follow this pattern either. So no one has followed Ezekiel's um, vision yet. Um, but what we're going to look at here is Ezekiel 47, um, verses 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. There's an angel showing him around, giving him a tour of the temple um, with great detail. And he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now, in all the chapters before this, there's no any talk about water flowing anywhere. This is chapter 47 is where it pops up. Literally, the water pops up. Um, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around uh, on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side, that is, on the south side of the east gate. The water is flowing east out of Ezekiel's temple. It's flowing east towards the Jordan River. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand. It it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea, that is, the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there. 
that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where, it, where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enegleim, or Enegleim. Uh, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. There's no doubt that John, John's image is drawn from Ezekiel's, but also from uh, Moses's in Genesis. Do you see how they're all tied together? Uh, Genesis chapter 2, Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22. Water flows out of that which God sets apart for that purpose. Moving water, flowing water is God's idea, God's analogy. It preaches. Um, So, the water flows out of that uh, which God has set apart for that purpose, and good things come from it. Water flows from the garden, water flows from the temple, and water flows from the throne of God. Genesis, Ezekiel, and Revelation. In Genesis... Eden is a kind of temple, and uh, it's been even longer since we went through the book of Genesis, so I want to, I thought this was intriguing, and I want to share it with you, um, how how is the Garden of Eden a temple? What what kind of, you know, how how do we make that connection? Here are a few things to consider. The temple was the place of God's special presence, where he made himself known and felt to Israel. That is exactly how his walking with Adam and Eve in the garden is depicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Adam is placed in the garden to cultivate and keep. Abad and Samar, these two Hebrew words, cultivate and keep, Genesis 2.15. The same two words are translated elsewhere as serve and guard. And when they appear together, they are either referring to Israelites serving or obeying God's word, or to the job of the priest in guarding and keeping the temple. Okay, they were supposed, priests were supposed to serve and guard in the temple. Cultivate, keep, serve, guard, uh, same, they're, they're all the same words, Abad and Samar. <clears throat> um, several other scriptures there we're not going to look at, but Numbers 3, several places in Numbers and in uh, 1 Chronicles Uh, to find those cultivate, keep, serve, and guard themes. The tree of life served as a model for the lampstand, the um, the lampstand in the temple, which was clearly shaped as a tree in the temple. Israel's later temple was made with wood carvings of flowers, palm trees, etc., meant to recall Eden's great brilliance, or garden brilliance. Uh, You can find that in 1 Kings 6, 18, 29, 32, 35, Pomegranates were also placed at the bottom of the two, um, two stone pillars in the temple. Um, the first Kings 7, I think. The entrance to the temple was to the east on a mountain 
facing Zion. That's Exodus 15, 17. Just as the temple prophesied in Ezekiel, uh, chapter 40, uh, verse two, verses 2 and 6, and chapter 43, verse 12, the entrance to Eden was also from the east, Genesis 3.24, and in some places pictured as being on a mountain. Ezekiel 28. This, this is, I'm just going to, I am going to turn to this one. Ezekiel 28. Um, I thought that was, this is something, I, I had heard the other things before about the temple imagery um, regarding the garden. But uh, Ezekiel 28 was kind of new to me. Um, this is in this uh, in his message about the king of Tyre, a lament over the king of Tyre, or Tyre. Um, he says, "You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked." Um, and I don't have time to unpack all of that. Let's see, verse sixteen. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Um, that, that imagery, one day we may get into the book of Ezekiel, but I'm afraid of it. It's, there's so much. You think I'm, I'm a problem preacher now. <laughs> this stuff is, is, is far out. <clears throat> um, but uh, there's imagery here suggesting that Eden... Is on a hill. Is on a mountain. Eden as the mountain of God, and uh, that this figure being, uh, it says, is the king of Tyre, but uh, it might be understood as Adam being cast out of the garden. Um, well, and in fact, in verse thirteen of chapter twenty-eight, um, you know what? I'm going to start at verse eleven. Okay, just bear with me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, all these other gems, blah, 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 blah. On the day when you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones you, in the fire you walked. Okay, so you get the idea. There's Garden of Eden imagery, and it, the Garden of Eden is portrayed as a mountain. Okay, um, so there's, this, there's that that connection with Garden as temple. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the Ark of the Covenant, both were ac- um, were accessed or touched only on pain of death. In other words, you couldn't, you, just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you touch that, well, actually, if you ate of it, you could touch it. But if you ate of it, you would die. And the ark, um, if, you, if you access either one of these, it's a big deal, right? You die. Um, okay, so just as a river flowed out of Eden, Genesis 2.10, so a river flows out of Ezekiel's temple. Um, Ezekiel 28, 13, and 14 refers to Eden as the holy mountain of God, uh, which everywhere else in the Old uh, in the Old Testament is the temple and tabernacle language. Okay, so I had a little asterisk in my notes here. It's supposed to go to that. So you get the idea. Um, in Genesis, Eden is a kind of temple. Um, Ezekiel has a vision of an ideal temple. And in Revelation, Christ is the temple. 
In Genesis, the river flows through the garden. In Revelation, it flows through the middle of the street of the city. Uh, in Revelation 22. <clears throat> so the movement, and I think you've heard me say this before, the movement of Scripture is from garden to garden city. From garden to garden city. And a river flows through it. Okay, <laughs> from, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, a river flows through it. <clears throat> we still have to cultivate and keep the garden. In Eden, it was the garden garden. In the kingdom, uh, it is the church. So uh, the, this whole idea of, of our mission, what we're supposed to be doing 1,960 years into the kingdom of God, at least there's that. We're supposed to cultivate and keep. Okay, these, these things are supposed to continue on. And notice, the Garden of Eden, from the beginning of man's existence, this is what you're supposed to cultivate and keep. God put man in the garden and said, cultivate and keep. We know of no purpose for our existence beyond that. Right? That, that is, I mean, the, the, the catechism says, well, what's the chief end of man? Nathan, you remember that? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so I mean, that's another perspective on it, but you understand what we're talking about here. Um, the garden is to be tended, it's to be cultivated, and it is to be kept or protected. <clears throat> I wish I had time to go into the 12 kinds of fruit. Um, back to Revelation 22. I don't, um, but it is intriguing. Um, he just kind of throws that out there and says, yeah, there were, um, there's the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The every month thing obviously comes from Ezekiel. Ezekiel said the same thing. But John throws in this 12 kinds of fruit. Uh, you know, that could just be perfection. 12 is perfection. You got the 12 prophets. You got the 12 apostles, um, 12 tribes, I'm sorry. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Uh, maybe that's just perfection. Somebody somewhere has itemized the, the 12 kinds of fruit. I'm sure they have. Um, <clears throat> okay, so for the healing of the nations. Well, the trees grow on the banks of the river of life. Uh, there would be no trees without this water. And the water flows out from the temple. So the trees that grow up for the healing of the nations, the leaves from those trees for the healing of the nations, comes. Uh, they grow there because of uh, this water. Note, please, if you will, uh, that when the city of God is a reality on earth, here at the end of, of Revelation, the city of God, a reality on earth, the nations will still need healing. The river that flows through the city of God um, has trees that grow on the banks and its leaves are for the healing of of the nations, okay? So when the city of God is there and the river is flowing through it, there are still nations that need healing. <clears throat> um, so what is history moving towards? Well, it's moving towards the healing of the nations. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the basic idea. But let's not get the cart before the horse. Our first job is to be the temple, the body of Christ. 
collectively, so that this living water has a place to flow out of. Okay, so cultivate and keep, because that is where the living water uh, flows out from, and uh, the nations are healed that way. The healing of the nations happens as a result of our worship. It's hard to understand that, uh, especially when there are, you know, churches are shrinking in numbers, right? Um, and so, and we wonder what's happening to the world. You see, can you connect the dots? <laughs> um, the uh, there's there's fewer leaves for the healing of the nations, um, and uh, a bit less living water flowing out from worship. So. <clears throat> If we stop assembling for worship in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and simply try to heal the nations, a strategy widely praised by secularists everywhere, the living water will dry up and uh, everyone will need healing. Right? Um, so we cannot just turn aside and say, let's, just, let's heal the nations and forget about worship. Um, because that's not how it works. Uh, the, the healing comes from our worship. And nations like the Americans, right? The Americans, the American nation needs healing. The Russians, the Iranians, the Koreans, um, and any other nation you can think of. Uh, these are just people groups, okay? Um, he, also, in the first five chapters here, he describes some very interesting things I want to draw our attention to. So if you can take a look at your text there. Um, 12 kinds of fruit, leaves for the healing of the nations. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. Um, Now, if you just stop there, you might think there's nothing, there will not be anything accursed anywhere. But you've got to finish reading. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. So we, we need to understand there will no longer be anything accursed in the city. Okay. No longer will there be anything accursed in the city of God. Um, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Um, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So verse 4. Okay. Um, and this, we can apply this all throughout Revelation and, and, and many other places where we get... Um, symbolic and figurative language. A lot of times we'd like to separate these things sometimes, and so we'll take this one um, literally and this one figuratively, and sometimes that's, that's actually necessary. Um, but so, so when we take a look at this, okay, he's, he's talking about this, this city of God and the river flowing through it. No longer will there be anything accursed in that city, but uh, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Both of those things are together. Okay, so, where does our imagination go with this? Is John, is John telling us, are we being told by the word of God, that in the kingdom of God, in the city of God, we will see Jesus' face, and as we're looking at him, he'll look at us and see letters on our foreheads. 
Are, are, are we all going to have words printed on our, or letters printed on our foreheads? I don't think that's what the vision is about. So I also don't think we need to necessarily think we're going to be looking at the literal face of Jesus, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying you, you know, we won't see his face, but what I'm saying is this text here, is you've got to take these two things together. Um, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So if you're going to be looking at his face, you're going to have letters on your forehead, okay? Um, so, and then let's go on to verse 5. And night will be no more. And they will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. <clears throat> uh, no need uh, for lamp or sun. It doesn't see, say there won't be a sun or a lamp anywhere. It says they won't need one because he will be their light. Okay? Um, so we, what, what we're suggesting here is when we read, as we went through the book of Revelation before, when we read through it, we don't necessarily have to take everything in sort of a wooden structured way. If, you, if, it, if it helps you to think one day you're going to have letters written on your forehead, good. I'm not saying like, you know, completely abandon that. I'm just saying that may not be necessary. That's not the only way to take the text, okay? Um, so, you know, what could things like that mean? Well, looking at someone's face means you're going to be close, right? You're going to be close and you're going to be close enough to have conversation. You're going to be close enough to have a a close relationship. And that the whole name written on the forehead, uh, remember, there's also the beasts, the number of the beasts written on the foreheads of, of other people, right? There's those two places in Revelation where names are written on foreheads, uh, and it's God's people and uh, not God's people. And, uh, but that idea is really just about um, who do you belong to, right? Who do you belong to? And what he's saying is, the, the ones who are going to be face-to-face -face with Christ are the ones who belong to him, okay? <clears throat> All right. Um, okay, if, if we, okay, so if we li literally see his face, then uh, we will literally have letters on our foreheads. Um, enough about that. These are some of the facts of life in the New Jerusalem, uh, both in AD 70 and in 2020, okay? So I'm trying to put these things together here for us. Um, so, uh, nothing accursed in the city. John says, this, this is the end of the book of Revelation, the kingdom of God. There will be nothing accursed in the city. Um, so, you know, what does that mean? What does accursed mean? Um, God makes, he makes everything holy, right? Where, where he's at, he makes everything holy. Um, and this is certainly a goal. Um, do we know... It, are there some problems in the church? Are there some people with some problems in the church? Yep. In fact, all the people in the church have problems. Um, you know, whether or not, you know, to, to what degree that is accursed. So, you know, that's, that's kind of different. Um, and, of course, John's vision is sort of contrasting uh, the old covenant world with the new covenant world. So I wish I had time to go into that some more, but I don't. I'm going to go to the next section, which is verses 6 and 7. Um, and the theme there, Jesus is coming again. Um, coming again. So take a look at verses 6 and 7. 
He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And I, I find it really interesting here, this back and forth between the angel and Jesus. And it's, it's really tricky to find out who's talking sometimes, uh, whether it's the angel or whether it's Jesus. <clears throat> um, so, like in verse 6, okay, and he said to me, Okay, well, that's the, that's the angel. Uh, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. <clears throat> and then verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Wait, wait, who's talking? Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy. Of this. Who's coming soon? Okay, well... I think we're safe in saying it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who's coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of, the, of this prophecy. <clears throat> um, and then you know, we have the, the next section where it says, don't worship angels, right? Um, John was like, okay, I've, got, I've seen all this vision now. I'm the one who heard and saw these things. Everything I just, Revelation 1 to 22, I, I'm the one who saw this stuff. And I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant. So this is an angel, right? This is an angel, not Jesus. But in verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. Right? So we just have, when you read through this stuff, you have to be careful. Who's talking? And it kind of goes back and forth. There is this, um, it's, you, know, you almost, <laughs> I can't help but think, it's, it's easy for someone to think, okay, John was on a, a drug trip. <laughs> he, he was having like double vision and stuff because, you know, he's like, you've seen this in movies all the time. It's like you're looking at someone and they're like blended images, right? And I'm looking at this and it's that and it's this. Which, which one is it, right? And it, it happens all the time, and especially in Revelation. Okay, um, <clears throat> so with the vision complete, the angel says, these words are trustworthy and true. I am, the, uh, I am the angel, basically in verses 6 and 7, he's telling John, I'm the angel to show you and the servants of God what must soon take place. Uh, and then, of course, in verse 7, I am coming soon. Um, Jesus says the same thing. Uh, keep the words of the prophecy of this book. <clears throat> um, pop back up to Revelation 1. Okay, this is the start. There's, it's really a good... Uh, comparison to compare Revelation 1 and Revelation 22 sometimes. But um, Revelation 1 3 um, says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, not just reads them, reads them aloud. Um, back when we studied the book of Revelation, uh, we kind of pointed out that the book of Revelation is actually um, a guide to worship. The whole thing is kind of structured as a guide to worship. So, uh, but again, we're not going through that again. So, um, some other time. So, but he says, "Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." Okay. So, one thing you're definitely going to get if you read Revelation 22, one and twenty, just take one and twenty-two. Something's happening soon. Right? Time is near. There's more reasons for, for us to consider that. But um, 
Okay, so Jesus is coming again, verses 6 and 7. Um, verses 8 and 9, don't worship angels. Uh, I don't need to say any more about that. You guys get the point, right? Don't worship angels. Um, 10 and 11, <clears throat> to seal or not to seal? That is the question. Take a look at verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for, and that's, that's uh, just telling you this is the reason, the reason is that the time is near. What's the implication? That if the time were not near, you could go ahead and seal up this book, right? <clears throat> okay. Um, if a prophecy is about to be fulfilled, you should leave it open. If the prophecy is many years in the future, it should be sealed up. Safe to say, but I'm not just guessing about that. Take a look at Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> Daniel is the only other place where this comes up, and so you can definitely tell John, uh, John's vision comes some from Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. Again, Daniel's received a vision. Um, and uh, the angel tells him, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Okay, so we're not just guessing at this idea at Revelation that when a prophecy is for a long time in the future, you seal it up. If it's going to come soon... You don't seal it up, right? So Daniel eight twenty six. So this is that's a big clue. Uh, the book of Revelation was going to come real soon to uh, first century readers. Uh, okay, chapter twelve, Daniel chapter twelve, verse four and verse nine. Let me go ahead and read that for you. But you, Daniel, shut up the words. Don't shut up. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Uh, so uh, Daniel, when Daniel receives his vision, um, he's, this is right around 500, the, the early 500s. Um, and he says, seal this up until the time of the end. Of course, the things uh, that he's talking about there, uh, the end of the age and... Uh, so it's, there's a good amount of time, 500 years uh, between what Daniel sees and the fulfillment of that. So if 500 years, if it's 500 years from now, you seal it up. If it's less than 500 years, don't seal it up. Okay, I mean, that's, that's a safe, when you put these things together, uh, did I give you verse 9 as well? Chapter 12, verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Okay, <clears throat> so you get the idea. To seal or not to seal, uh, he is told here, don't seal this up, for the time is near. <clears throat> Consider one more passage in Revelation itself, Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Uh, this is the same image from the throne room, where it's, it's actually God, or Jesus. <clears throat> um, he had a little scroll open in his hand, 
and he set his right foot on the sea. The sea represents the Gentiles. And his left foot on the land. That's Israel. Right foot on the uh, right foot on the sea, left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a, a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. I did not go over this at all when we did Revelation. You really, this is the thing you want to know. Like what? Because you've got seven, the, the seven seals, the seven chalices, the seven, all the sevens. You've got a lot of sevens in Revelation. <clears throat> um, and it tells, you, get, you find out something about all those things. They're all unveiled in Revelation. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So I, John had more stuff. There was more, there was, you know, he told us all about the chalices and the bowls and all that stuff. When, when this happened, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. I was going to write it down. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. What they say? Don't know. But it happened after 70 AD. After, that stuff is for later. Seal it up. I'd love to have access to that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The seven thunders. But he says, seal it up. Because that's not about to happen right now. But this other stuff that I just told you, all that stuff from Revelation 1 to 22, that's about to happen. So don't seal it up. <clears throat> and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the, on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay. Not 2,000 years. No more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. No more delay. Verses 12 through 15, ready or not, here I come. 12 through 15. <clears throat> Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. <clears throat> Behold, I am coming soon. Very hard to miss how strong this message is in Revelation. It is a central point of the whole book, the great unveiling, the apocalypse. That is what the word apocalypse means. Okay, Just remind ourselves, we often hear apocalypse and we think, great disaster, everything's going to be destroyed. But it's, it's an unveiling. Okay, is about to take place. Um, that is, oh, that's the theme of John's revelation. It's about to happen. The great unveiling is about to happen. So he says, wash your robes. Um, you say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they ha may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Um, so washing robes, although this is for them, it's not just for them. We have to wash our robes too. There is a first century application and a 21st century application. Confession is the washing of robes. <clears throat> Christ has made us clean already, so we don't need to be washed. Um, we need to wash our robes, though. 
because uh, they get dirty. <clears throat> he says, outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, all who love and practice falsehood. These are the ones who refuse to repent of these things, um, washing their robes. They, they don't wash their robes, so they can't come into the city, right? Wash your robes so you can come into the city. Again, consider that these things remain even as the new Jerusalem has already come. There are these people outside of the new Jerusalem. Just as there are nations that need healing, there are people who need to wash their robes. Um, Clearly, the reality of the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem does not immediately eliminate the need for nations to be healed and sinners to be cleansed. This is the mission of the church in AD 70 and in AD 2020. Uh, 16 and 17, Jesus the thirst quencher. Uh, The spirit and the bride say, come. Uh, And I I think I told you a little while ago about this ambiguous, no, I didn't. I used the word ambiguous before, but this is also ambiguous. There's a lot of ambiguous stuff in Revelation. Um, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, you thirsty. Um, We are the bride, and our role is both to see the Lord's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Right? The Spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. But our role is also to invite. Okay? So the Spirit and the bride say, come. So the Spirit and the bride say, Themselves, they say to Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. But the Spirit and the Bride say to the world, come. So you get how that's, that's like, there's, two, again, double vision. It's, there's two things going on there. Um, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Um, in fact, I want to look at 16 and 17. Um, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Uh, I'm the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Verses 18 through 20, don't mess with this book. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, again, it's not really clear who's doing the warning uh, is it the angel? Is it Jesus? Is it John? I don't know. It's, it, the writing just doesn't make it clear. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Don't take away or add to it So you get the idea that if you mess around with this book, that you're in danger of losing something, right? I think that's happened in the modern church. I think we have messed around with this book and our messing around with it has caused us to lose some things, um, lose some important things. Don't mess with this book. John is talking about the book of Revelation. Um, And then it ends, Surely I am coming soon, 
Okay, in case you didn't get the theme already, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely, if you haven't gotten the message already, I'm coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Okay, so, um, remember, my goal here was for us to get a clearer vision of the kingdom of God in 2020, especially in the light of the fact that the scriptures are closed, right? 1,960 years ago, it's all done. Um, uh, Revelation 1.1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. The visions that John receives in this revelation are all rooted in the Old Testament prophets and are centered on Jerusalem um, in and around AD 70, the destruction of the old covenant heaven and earth. They are all soon and near to John's audience. As the old covenant heaven and earth are taken out of the way, the new covenant heaven and earth are unveiled. The unveiling, the revelation. But to say that all of Revelation was fulfilled in the first century, while technically true, is a kind of shorthand which can be misleading. Um, So centered on and fulfilled are not exactly the same thing. Um, The the conflicts and the judgments described all refer primarily to the tremendous world-shattering changes taking place then in AD 70. Okay, so we've got that pretty well fixed in our minds. Um, all those conflicts and judgments refer primarily to then. But they also describe the emergence, the beginning of new covenant realities that remain with us today as dimensions of life in the kingdom of God. Chief among them, that river and the tree of life. Okay, that's strong stuff. And as with all of Scripture, Words with a particular ancient context are not stuck to that time. Rather, they are eternal and often have multiple applications, echoes, if you will, um, throughout the years. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, if all of Revelation is focused on AD 70, what's next? What is in our future? Where is the kingdom of God going? These are heavy questions, and uh, we've not been left without at at least some directions. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Isaiah um, 11.9 and Habakkuk 2.4, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These are things yet to to happen. The world's going to be saved. The world is going to be full of the knowledge of uh, the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. The Bible actually doesn't really talk about the end of the world anywhere. Um, I don't know. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be one, but the, the scriptures do say of his kingdom, there will be no end. Luke 1.33, Revelation 11.15. So we know that God's plan for human history is to save the world and that the world would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas and that his kingdom will be forever. Consider these things from our text today. The trees of life that grow along the banks of the river of life within the city of God are meant for the healing of the nations, 
This means that regardless of when you think the city of God comes, there will still be people and nations who need healing even after it comes. Okay, that's, that's one point. We must continue to assemble for worship and improve our worship in order to generate that living water that results in the healing. God supplies the living water in and through. Okay, okay. again, Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and the title of the message is, Like God to Pharaoh. So let's first read the text. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Uh, yes, there's six. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the story that you have given us. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would give us understanding today um, of the text, of, of the word that you have revealed, and, and also uh, of how you would have us apply it and understand it today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, a little bit of review. How many years between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus? That's kind of a trick question. Shout it out. 460? Okay. Basically, you're safe in the 400s. You say 400, um, and there's another text that says 430. And so, but basically... Roughly around 400 years, okay? So uh, that's between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus. How old was Moses when God called him to deliver his people? Yes, 80 years old. Um, can you name Moses' two sons? Dun, dun, dun. Gershom and Eliezer. What about his wife? Zipporah. Zipporah. Good. Now, these kinds of things, uh, hopefully, what I'm, what I'm aiming for there is, one, review, and two, uh, that we keep in mind that Moses was a man, right? He wasn't, he's a person, and we've seen, we've watched some of the struggles that he's gone through, um, and uh, he has these two sons, and he has a wife. Uh, you know about his father-in-law, you know, the Midianites, and things like that. We've been over those things. Um, but he, he was a man, and he had some doubts, and he, uh, he also had some ambitions. He wanted to free his people uh, from Egypt. Uh, he gave it a shot, killed an Egyptian, and then uh, his people turned him in, and, uh, and, and he fled, and he said, forget it. I'm, a, I'm now a Midianite. I'm going to hang out here for a while. And God said, no, wait. I got another plan for you. Now that you're 80 years old, time to do something else. God prepared and called Moses to an enormous task. Uh, he, 
basically, Moses, you need to command the most powerful person in the world. Uh, not that big of a deal for Moses necessarily because he spent his first 40 years in Pharaoh's house, right? So it's like, well, I could talk to the guy. Yeah, I think I could probably do that. But I could lose my life too. So, um, uh, He also has to lead Israel out of Egypt. He has to lead Israel to the altar of covenant with God. And he has to prepare Israel to execute the judgment of God on Canaan and to rule in that land with righteousness and justice. There's a lot put on Moses' shoulders. Thus far, he has only managed to anger Pharaoh and God's people. At this point, everyone's against him. He barely has Aaron's assistance with him anymore. Uh, Everyone else is uh, sort of upset. The people of Israel would not listen to Moses, remember. Um, They would not hear what he was telling them because of their own broken spirit and harsh slavery. Uh, In despair, they turned their back on God to wallow in self-pity and dark thoughts. And we all know something about a broken spirit, about depression and despair, about how, as the psalmist says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs 13, 12. I I should say, as as the proverbist says, not the psalmist. Anyway, Proverbs 13, 12, uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Remember, we are encouraged in Scripture, just as our ancestors here in the story of Exodus, to cry out to God on the basis of His own revealed Word. Remember, we, we had a, a, one of our messages uh, in Exodus was about this, how we are, are in fact encouraged to cry out to God uh, and say, where are, where are you, God? You know, things are not going right. Where are you? Why have you forsaken your covenant? Where is your steadfast love of old? This, we, we are encouraged to grumble like this, if you want to use the word grumble, to complain in a sense, cry out to God and say, where are you? We need to learn to grumble like Christians. Um, there is a difference between selfish despair and holy despair. The New Testament refers to holy despair as hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember that? Okay. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the kinds of people who would cry out to God and say, Lord, where are you? Um, why have you forsaken your covenant? Where is your steadfast love of old? Um, because they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Selfish despair versus holy despair. James 4, 1 through 3. Um, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. A person who is only moved by his selfish desires, who becomes depressed and despairs because he cannot have what he wants for his own personal enjoyment, James says, is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Such a person should expect no sympathy from God on that account. How many of the Hebrews in Egypt were like this? Simply depressed because they couldn't get what they wanted for themselves without concern for the covenant. They were just frustrated that they were slaves. How many would have been content to stay in Egypt if they could get a 40-hour work week with decent benefits? We don't know. What if they could have gotten the best and the coolest chariots and were given regular access to all of Egypt's entertainment channels? 
Would they have wanted to leave then? Would they have willingly forsaken and forgotten God's covenant and the dominion mandate? The scripture says they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit. Too many Christians give little thought to hopes and goals beyond their own personal lives, their stuff, their experiences. But if we want to understand what God is doing and perhaps why this or that thing is happening, we must be aware of the bigger picture of covenant and the dominion mandate. Too many have no idea what a covenant is. If you use the word covenant, lots of people will just kind of squint at you or they don't know what, what are you talking about. And dominion mandate, that sounds like some sort of modern political term. Um, how, how God's covenant, <clears throat> okay, so lots of Christians, too many Christians today just don't understand how God's covenant with his people um, is the only means to truly make the world a better place. Uh, Domin- the dominion mandate is uh, found in Genesis 1.28. Uh, and God blessed them, that is, Adam and Eve, <clears throat> um, male and female. And he's, uh, God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Dominion means rule, authority, responsibility to manage. Who has that? Who has responsibility to manage? Humanity. Judging from Genesis 1.28, he spoke. Um, of course, Adam is the head of that. He's the federal head of that uh, operation, but it is given to all humanity. So we all have that. As if you, want, if you need one command from God, that's the first one. Right? Um, take dominion. Have dominion. Uh, manage creation. <clears throat> so, uh, in our preparation for the, in our background for this, we talked about uh, how people tried to carry out this dominion mandate. Right? So, you had, um, before, um, before the flood, you had individualism. Basically, everyone was trying to carry out the dominion mandate in their own name. Like, I'm going to get mine, Right? I'm going to manage my stuff and even if I have to take some of what you got, right? And even if we have to fight and I have to kill you to get more stuff for me, I'm going to take over. That's, that's, that's how the dominion mandate got sort of perverted by individualism uh, prior to the flood. And so God said, wait a minute, this isn't working, right? So this, this is not how to do it, right? This is not how to do it. So he said, Okay, scratch that, wipe everybody out, and we'll start again. And what did they do? Well, they learned that lesson. They got all together, though. And they said, now we're going to, we won't try to be individuals so much as we're going to try to get together and make a name for ourselves. So we're going to carry out the dominion mandate. Uh, We are going to subdue the earth, but not in the name of God. We're going to do it in the name of man. Humanity. We're going to make a name for ourselves, um, and so God gently instructed them. No, that's that's not the way either, because the Tower of Babel was a great success, wasn't it? Right, so God God sort of thwarted that project and separated separated everyone. Um, and so the next step in the story, then, if if we don't carry out the dominion mandate by individualism, and we don't carry it out 
by collectively gathering together in the name of man, the next step in the scriptures, in the story that we're told, is God's covenant. And he says, look, this is how you do it. It's not the one, it's not the many, it's submission to me in, uh, uh, basically dominion in the name of God, not dominion in the name of yourself and not dominion in the name of humanity. So this is where, where Israel was as Moses and Aaron went to speak to Pharaoh. Their spirit was broken. They had the dominion mandate and the covenant and promise through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they had waited so long and many despaired, turning their back on God. Many simply wanted better things for themselves and their family and gave no thought to the bigger picture. But God continued on with his plan anyway, even though they were, many of them were despairing and not listening. We know he doesn't stop carrying out his plans when we lose faith or when despair overtakes us. <clears throat> um, when we become numb and apathetic, we stop going to church. God doesn't stop carrying out his plans. God's plans for us and for the world are bigger and more important than our individual and private preferences. Bigger than the things we sometimes think are so important. When God delivers people, it is for a purpose bigger than themselves. And if you're catching on here, you might be noticing I'm reviewing the past lessons we've had. And I know you guys, sometimes you roll your eyes and go, man, you going to say this again? Yeah, I'm going to say this again. <clears throat> like Paul says somewhere, he says, it doesn't bother me just to repeat this again. And I'm thinking that the people who he wrote that to are going, well, it bothers us. <laughs> it doesn't bother me to repeat it to you. Um, okay, so... God delivers his people. It's for a purpose bigger than themselves. Remember we talked about deliverance is for consecration and consecration is for mission. Israel was delivered for, from Egypt, right? They were delivered from Egypt for what purpose? To be consecrated at Sinai for a mission of divine judgment and covenant dominion. Okay? So it, they weren't delivered from Egypt just because Egypt was a bad thing. Okay? God had a plan for them, and deliverance was the beginning of it. <clears throat> they had to come out of Egypt in order to be prepared to go into Canaan. That is, that's the operation. That's the story that God is telling. Deliverance, consecration, mission. Let us remember that this is precisely the pattern of covenant renewal worship. Sin offering, ascension offering, fellowship offering... Confession, consecration, communion. Out of Egypt to be prepared to go into Canaan. You get that? You see how, how that pattern just repeats itself on several layers in the scriptures? Sin offering, ascension offering, fellowship offering, confession, consecration, communion, out of Egypt to be prepared to go into Canaan. That's, that's how it works. That's what God is doing. Selfishness and sin is our Egypt. Selfishness and sin is our Egypt, and the world around us is our Canaan. Okay? Try to get these things fixed. This is, this is God's story on multiple levels, right? From then to now. It's the same thing. Selfishness and sin is our Egypt, and the world around us is our Canaan. Life in the church is our Sinai, where God speaks his word to us and trains us in righteousness. 
Okay, so we've got our Egypt that we come out of and we've got our um, Canaan where we're going into. And in the middle, that's the church. That is the purpose of the church. God speaks his word to us and trains us in righteousness. You cannot get, you can't carry out the mission in Canaan properly unless you are properly prepared in the church. You've got to go, not only delivered, they could not have been delivered from Egypt and gone straight into Canaan. Right? That's not how it works. They wouldn't have, they would not have succeeded. Um, if, if they could have done it that way, God would have done it that way, right? <clears throat> but he, he didn't. Uh, he took them out of Egypt and he, get, he sent them to Sinai to be prepared. <clears throat> so let's see what the Lord will tell us um, well, let me, let me first say this. Life in the church is about preparing us as individuals and as a congregation to carry out the mission of saving the world. Okay? That is what life in the church is about. So let's see what the Lord uh, will tell us through his word today. Uh, in Exodus chapter 7, uh, the first two verses have a lot, uh, a lot of power to them. Let's take a look at the first two verses of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So, is this new? Well, it sounds new at first. Uh, You shall be as God to Pharaoh. But if you'll turn back to Exodus chapter 4, the burning bush incident where uh, where Moses was so excited about about carrying out the mission that God had given him uh, that he tried very hard to get out of it. Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So he had made so many excuses, beginning in verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. You shall be as God to him. To who? To Aaron. Right? In, in chapter 4, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses is like God to Aaron. <clears throat> okay, so now in chapter 7, you shall be as God to Pharaoh. <clears throat> so let's see, see if we can put some of this together. Um, so Moses is trying to get out of the mission. God tells him um, about Aaron, you shall be as God to him. So there's a chain here. God, Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, right? This is how the, the telephone line goes, if you've played that game before, right? God's at one end, Pharaoh's at the other. God gives the message, and hopefully Pharaoh's getting the same message at the end, right? Because uh, God speaks to Moses, and Moses speaks to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. <clears throat> at least that's sort of the plan. So in chapter 4, Moses is like God to, Pharaoh, to, to Aaron because he tells Aaron what to say, Right? Moses is giving the word to Aaron. 
And so in chapter 4, Moses is like God to Aaron. In chapter 7, Moses is like God to Aaron, or to, to Pharaoh, for the same reason. It's just he's kind of cut Aaron out of the picture, right? In, in chapter 7, God says, Moses, you're going to be like God to, uh, to Pharaoh. Moses is, in a sense, like God to us, too. Think about where we fit there. For he tells us what to say to the world, right? Because, again... If you figure out, okay, there's God, Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. Where do you fit? Well, you're not God, <clears throat> right? Um, are you Moses? Nah, you're not Moses. Are you kind of like Aaron? Yeah, I think we're somewhere between Aaron and Pharaoh, maybe, okay? Um, <clears throat> but uh, Moses is, in a sense, like God to us, for he tells us what to say. God has, God's given words to him, and, and he speaks to us. But Moses himself pointed to another. Okay, so let's take a look at Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. This is said in another place, but Deuteronomy 18 has a good account of it. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And The Lord said to me, <clears throat> they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Who's this talking about? Mo Moses says, uh, there's going to be another, there's going to be a prophet. God's going to raise up a prophet like me. <clears throat> um, so... Um, there are many other prophets in the Bible. None of them are said to be like Moses. Until we get to the New Testament. Acts chapter 3, Peter is speaking. He's preaching, actually. And he says, repent, therefore, and turn back. He's talking to his, his fellow uh, Jews. And uh, he says, repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Okay, so Peter identifies this prophet that Moses spoke of. Moses says, God's going to send you a prophet like me. And Peter says, that's Jesus. Okay, Peter points out, hey, remember, Moses had told us this. Here he is. Here's the one that Moses spoke about. He said, it's, someone's coming like him. And whoever doesn't listen to him... And, but it's, at first glance, you think, Peter is making things up. <clears throat> Because, uh, at verse 23 in Acts chapter 3, he says, 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's not the way it's worded in Deuteronomy or really directly anywhere in the Old Testament. What Peter has done is he's put Deuteronomy 18 together with Leviticus 23-29 to say that whoever did not listen to Moses was cut off from the people of God and so whoever does not listen to Jesus will be cut off in the same way. So that's what Peter is doing with the scripture here. Uh, He's putting two uh, Old, Old Testament passages together and the idea is Jesus is the prophet like Moses um, who must be listened to um, in the same way as Moses was. Another place in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, verse 37, this is Stephen's uh, speech. He says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He's talking about Moses. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So Stephen goes on to point, point out again, just like Peter did, that the prophet like Mo- that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Okay? He is the one that Moses said was going to come. Lots of other prophets came. But none of them were said to be like Moses. So in some sense, Jesus has to be distinctly like Moses in in a way that none of the other prophets are. Okay? So we need to figure out, you know, what's going on with that. So Stephen compares Jesus to Moses. Um, He says Jesus is ruler and redeemer. That translates in our language to Lord and Savior. Okay? Ruler and redeemer, Lord and Savior. How is Jesus uniquely like Moses? How is Jesus uniquely like Moses? And what we have to do here is figure out how is he, in, he's like Moses in, in a way that no one else is like Moses. There, like, again, there, there are many other prophets, right? There are lots of other prophets. None of them are said to be like Moses. Um, <clears throat> so how is Jesus uniquely like Moses? Jesus claims and exercises the same covenant-making authority and power as Moses. Okay? You have these two figures in the story that God is telling us. Um, You have type and antitype. Okay? Um, uh, Moses is uh, a type of Christ. Okay? Um, So you've got... Jesus is that same kind of thing. Jesus claims and exercises the same covenant-making authority and power as Moses. Whatever power and authority Moses had to establish covenant guidelines, Jesus had the same. Okay, In fact, more, really. Um, so, that's, that's what makes him, that's one of the things, the main thing that makes him like uh, Moses. Jesus oversees the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. With, with that power and authority, Jesus oversees the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. Or, if you're paying close attention, I can put these in their proper order. He's, he oversees the beginning of the new covenant and the end of the old. That's how they happen chronologically. The new covenant begins, and then 40 years later, the old covenant ends. Okay? 
So if you're putting together all the pieces we've been talking about in terms of the coming of the Lord, uh, that parousia, the Lord's parousia, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD from 30 to 70, you got 40 years. Okay, so Jesus oversees the beginning of the new covenant and the end of the old. He says, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. I have authority to do this. Old Covenant Judaism is compared to Egypt in Revelation 11, 8. Uh, so he says, um, in fact, we should look at Revelation 11, 8 real quick. <clears throat> Revelation 11, 8. It's nice being able to go back to Revelation sometimes. Seems like going home. Um, all right, so in verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, this is talking about the two witnesses, right? Um, they have finished their testimony. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies, their dead bodies, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Okay, so is Jerusalem named there explicitly? No, you don't see the word Jerusalem. But these two witnesses, which remember we learned of the law and the prophets, um, they are killed and their bodies lie in the streets of that great city that is symbolically, John says, Jerusalem, which is where their Lord was crucified, is called Sodom and Egypt. How in the world is Jerusalem called Sodom and Egypt? Well, we don't have time to go into that day. We've been over it before in uh, a few other books, but... Uh, anyway, the Old Covenant, Old Covenant Judaism is compared to Egypt in Revelation eleven eight. Jesus leads Israel out of Old Covenant Egypt. Okay, again, what we're talking about here is how is Jesus like Moses? Okay, and one of the ways is that he leads Israel out of Old Covenant Egypt, out of Jerusalem, out of the Old Covenant system. He leads them out. Um, and so, uh, and not only does he lead them out, remember, when we're led out, we're being led into something too, right? So he leads them out of one thing and into another, <clears throat> that is, into the new covenant, Canaan, which is the world, right? We're supposed to take over the world, basically. If you put all this together, you understand that the pattern we, we see in Exodus is the pattern for new covenant life. It's, it's life in Christ. We get delivered from our Egypt in order to go into our Canaan, right? And in between, we have to be prepared to do that. Um, <clears throat> so, like Moses, and unlike the other prophets, prophets, Jesus has the power and authority to make changes to the covenant of God with his people. We can go even further than this. The apostles are to us like Aaron was to ancient Israel. Okay? Okay? The apostles are to us like Aaron was to ancient Israel. In Exodus 4, if I may, just want to paraphrase, you see if you can follow with me here. We just quoted from uh, Exodus 4, 15 through 16. I'm going to paraphrase it. This, is, this will be the New Testament paraphrase of Exodus 4, 15 and 16. You, Jesus, shall speak to them, the apostles. Jesus shall speak to the apostles and put the words in their mouths, and God will be with Jesus' mouth and with the apostles' mouth and will teach 
both what to do. They shall speak for Jesus to the people, and they shall be your, let's see here, and they shall be your, they shall be Jesus' mouth. The apostles shall be Jesus' mouth. And Jesus shall be as God to him. Okay, I know that was a little jumbled. Can you follow that? Okay. The same thing is going on here when you have Moses and Aaron, um, and you have Jesus and the apostles. Okay. Same kind of thing is going on. And so the apostles are like Aaron to us. The apostles speak for Jesus just as Aaron spoke for Moses. Jesus is like Moses. The scripture says that. And the apostles are like Aaron. The scriptures do not explicitly say that. Okay? I'm not, I don't have a verse for you. Okay? But you see how I've, I've got there. So, <clears throat> um, The fact that the apostles were given the authority to speak for Jesus is found in several places in the scriptures. Matthew 10.1 and 10.40. Uh, 16, 19, 18, 18, Luke 10, 16, and Luke 22, 29 are some places to see it rather clearly. Why is God chosen to speak only to a very few particular people? Why is God chosen only to speak to some people? Why doesn't he speak to everyone like he spoke to Moses and the apostles? Have you ever wondered that? You ever, you ever wish that God would just speak to you just like he spoke to them? <clears throat> um, well, we have a little bit of a hint in Exodus twenty nineteen and Deuteronomy eighteen sixteen, um, where Moses is reminding them about their experience on Mount Sinai, and he says, "Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die.'" Okay, apparently. Um, Hearing directly from the Lord can be terrifying, um, can be a, a very frightening experience, or it was for them, um, and so uh, they didn't want, they wanted, they, they, they actually asked for Moses just to, Moses, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us anymore, okay? You speak to us because he's too scary. God's too scary, Moses, you speak to us, it will we believe God's talking to you. <clears throat> um, other than this, we don't really know explicitly why God doesn't speak to everyone like he spoke to Moses. Even Moses' encounter, Moses's encounters with God are mysterious and hard to understand. Um, it's always, you know, is he really like face-to-face -face with God and does he have to turn away? Can he only see part of God? Um, is God kind of like holding back we get the impression God is holding back a little bit. And even holding back, Moses leaves the tent glowing. Right? And he has to, he has to wear a veil. Um, so uh, there's something going on there. But God, he he's, gets closer to, to God than anybody else. <clears throat> um, the apostles, at least, spoke with God primarily through Jesus. Right? So again, the apostles are kind of like Aaron. Right? They don't have to... They don't necessarily... Um, yeah, they don't walk away glowing, right? They're not like they're not radioactive. Okay, uh, verses three through five of our text today. We're back to Exodus seven. Um, the glory of the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> Let's take a look at um, verses three through five in chapter seven. <clears throat> 
But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, the people of uh, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so um, the instruction that God gives to Moses is, okay, go back to Pharaoh again. Or what happened last time? What happened last time he went to Pharaoh? Came up to Pharaoh and said, yeah, let us go. We're going to have, you know, we've got to go out and do some things for God. And, um, you know, it's okay. Just let it go. <clears throat> he kind of didn't say it exactly the way God told him to the first time. But what did Pharaoh do? He said, no, get back to work. In fact, get your own straw, right? He made work harder for the Hebrews. And did the Hebrews love Moses for it? No, no. They, they, did, not, they did not like Moses for that, and they didn't want to listen to him anymore. Um, and now God says, go back to Pharaoh. What would you be thinking if you're Moses? I don't know, it's hard to say. With hindsight, right? We're, look, we're looking at hindsight going, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But Moses is probably thinking, what new trouble is this going to get me in, right? The, you know, maybe the Israelites are going to try and kill me next because if Pharaoh makes things any harder, uh, I'm going to have a big target on my chest. <clears throat> um, so, go back to Pharaoh. Give him the same message. Let my people go. So, nothing's changed. Go back to Pharaoh. Give him the same message. And again, I will make sure he doesn't listen. Okay, Lord, could you make this any harder? <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded of, was it Elijah with the prophets of Baal? And uh, the big, uh, you know, he said, make a sacrifice, call down your gods, you know, right? And you do everything you can to make it good and make it easy. And then uh, that didn't work. So he said, okay, let me try. Except cover it all with water, Douse the whole thing, dig a trench, you know, make it really hard. Um, why? Why make it really hard? Because God's going to show his power. There will be no doubt, right? No doubt. This could not happen accidentally. Okay. Um, so, uh, he says, Pharaoh's not going to listen. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land. <clears throat> okay. Pharaoh's not going to listen. Does God ever prevent anyone from obeying his command? Well, the text says he did, and he does, because the command was, let my people go. And God said, I'm going to prevent him from obeying that command. I'm preventing Pharaoh from obeying my command. Does God do that kind of thing? If God can do it to Pharaoh, can he do it to you? Can he do it to anyone else he wants to? Yeah. God can give a command and he can prevent you from obeying it. So, that's a challenge. How did God know that Pharaoh wouldn't listen? Is it simply because God can see the future? I see what you're going to do there. Okay. I got a plan for that. 
Or is it that he wrote the story that way? I suggest to you, of course, that God wrote the story that way. It is because he made sure Pharaoh wouldn't listen. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why does God do this? Why does God harden anyone's heart? The scriptures say in some places other people's hearts were hardened. Why does God do this? Let's take a look at uh, the rest of this text here. It says, then I will lay my, let's see here. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring, uh, bring out the people of Israel from among them. I'm trying to figure out why I wrote this part. Uh, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, the people of the, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Um, okay. Um, wh- why has he waited so long? The next, next verse says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now this, this reminds me, and I always come back to this uh, story in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, about the man, the man born blind. Um, so chap, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God might be displayed in him. So if we kind of go back and say, Why, does, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? The same reason, for the same reason that Elijah poured water on his sacrifice. God hardened Pharaoh's heart to, to make it, to build up the tension, to build up the suspense. Like, uh, it would be, Pharaoh might have been able to claim that he had done it voluntarily, right? Yeah, so, so praise Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is generous and kind, and, and he lets you go. Praise Pharaoh. God said, no, it's not going to work like that. They will know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh is no God, right? In spite of what all the Egyptians thought. Um, So, that the works of God might be displayed in him. To display the works of God, that is why this kind of thing happens. When God gives a command and then prevents someone from obeying it. um, Hardens a heart. Um, now, that was not good news for Pharaoh, was it? No. Um, but it was, in the, in the overall story, it is good news. <clears throat> um, then I will lay my hand on Egypt, he says. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts out. Um, so once I've gotten to the point, I'm going to build this up until it's time, and then you'll see. Um, it is literally, <clears throat> life is the magnum opus of the maker. You guys know what a magnum opus is? A great work. It is God's great work. It is his masterpiece, this story that he is telling. It is literally his story. History. History is his story. He wrote it. And we're in it. Okay? He wrote the story. This is why he knows what's next. Right? 
How does God know the future? It's not because he can simply see the story that someone else wrote. He can't see the story that you're writing. He sees the story that he wrote. And he knows what's happening. There is, uh, there's no way that we can avoid being characters in this story. We may question the sovereignty of God, but we can never be objective observers from outside. We can question it, but we'll just simply be questioners. When we question God's sovereignty, it is always as characters in his story who are questioning God's sovereignty. You can question God's sovereignty all you want. You'll still just be a character in his story who questions his sovereignty. Okay, Love it or hate it, it belongs to him. As the author, he must, in some sense, own everything that happens in it. And everything that happens is leading somewhere by his design. There is nothing meaningless in this world. History is always either building towards great acts of judgment or, and deliverance, or it is in the midst of it. History is always either building towards great acts of judgment and deliverance, or it is in the midst of it, either preparing for reformation or experiencing it. For many, many years, the Hebrews were preparing for reformation, longing for it, had strained many of them to the point of despair. And now, through Moses, it is about to break out upon them and upon Egypt. And I want you to consider something about history. Just a kind of quick overview of the story. We often think that life in Christ and the church and the Bible, it only really has to do with stuff back then, right? That uh, it's whatever's in the pages of the scripture, that's it. But the whole story is his story, okay? Uh, just because we stopped receiving uh, a direct word from God um, in the first century does not mean that the story has stopped. I want you to consider a pattern of about 500. I want you to think about, remember, God's, God's time scale is much bigger than ours. But um, from Babel to Exodus, from the Tower of Babel to the time of the Exodus, approximately 500 years, give or take. From the Exodus to the kingdom, that is Saul, David, and Solomon, that's approximately another 500 years. From Solomon to captivity, or David to captivity, basically another 500 years. 586 uh, BC was the first uh, when the, the northern kingdom gets taken, uh, southern kingdom gets taken, Judah. 586. <clears throat> All right, so another 500 years. From captivity to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, that's about another 500 years. From the end of the Old Covenant or the fall of Jerusalem to the fall of Rome, about another 500 years. From the fall of Rome to the Crusades, it's another 500 years. From the Crusades to the Reformation, it's about another 500 years. From the Reformation to today, it's about another 500 years. I'm not trying to predict anything. I'm just saying the pattern of the story that God's been telling so far has had these approximately, give or take, roughly 500 year spans, and it's not like, it's not like a, you, you can clearly identify it and say, okay, here's the line, and it happens right there. People, scholars have argued for a long time, when do we date the fall of Rome? 
You know, it's, yeah, it moves around a bit. Um, the Crusades went on for quite some time. So, you know, all these things, they, they move around a little bit, but you get the impression there's a measure to it. There's a, there's a measurement to it. Um, and for many people outside the church, from outside of Christ, they look at history, and to them it seems a totally random collection of things. Like, it's almost as if they cannot read music. Like me. <laughs> I can't read music. <laughs> but it has a pattern. Just because you can't read the pattern doesn't mean it doesn't have one, right? Um, and so the story that we're in has a pattern. Um, and, and I'm thinking we're either in the midst of something or something's about to, there's reformation underway. Uh, some big changes are happening. So what do we do? <clears throat> verse 6 of our text today, the last verse. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. There's your answer. What do we do? We do just as the Lord commanded. Our part is to do just as the Lord commands and pray for the Reformation to come. Uh, he will take care of the Reformation. Uh, when it comes, it will be messy and difficult. Perhaps we're already in the midst of it without realizing it. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious and kind. We thank you for your word and for uh, your kingdom, for making us citizens um, and uh, um, joining us to your people, Israel. We pray, Father, that um, you would help us to hear your voice and to obey it. And even though it is likely to be messy and difficult, we pray that your next deliverance and reformation would come soon. And if we are in the midst of it, help us to see and be encouraged by your deliverance. We pray this in the good and strong name of Jesus. Amen. Blessed be the living and active word of God. Christ be Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and Okay, so our, ex our text today is uh, from Exodus chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Exodus 7, 7 through 13. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. 
Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word and for the, for the wonderful story that you have um, made us a part of. Um, we, we know that this story of um, bondage and deliverance and sanctification and mission, uh, that is, it is repeated in our lives um, and in, in every life, Lord, <clears throat> uh, for you free us from our Egypt and you sanctify us, and you lead us into the land uh, to glorify your name. Father, we pray that your word today, by your Holy Spirit, uh, would reach out into our hearts and minds, give us understanding, um, and, uh, and work your will in us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, a little review again. How many years between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus? Yeah, slow down a little bit here. Between the promise to Abraham and the Exodus. Four hundred years. <clears throat> You'll get that next time. Everybody will shout it out. <clears throat> How old was Moses when God called him to deliver his people? Eighty. Eighty. The text today says so. He was eighty. And just see if you're paying attention. How old was Aaron? 83, okay, good. Um, And can you name Moses' two sons? Gershom and Eliezer. By the time we're done with this, you will be able to name them. What about his wife? Zipporah, Zipporah. Okay, just a reminder that Moses had a wife and children. There was family life there of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so important themes from Exodus so far. We've been over covenant and the dominion mandate. We've been uh, really kind of driving that quite a bit. Um, covenant was the basis for crying out to God for help. It still is today. We can cry out to God just um, as the Psalms do all the time. Um, Lord, where are you? Come and do what you said you're going to do. Uh, things are not the way they should be, come and do what you said you're going to do. Uh, To grumble like Christians, we need to be able to do this. And we do that by calling out to him, crying out to him on the basis of the covenant. We are his people. If we understand the Psalms, we are the bride of Christ. And we're not to be a nagging wife, but still, you can call out to God and say, hey, you've got some covenant responsibilities, Lord. Um, You said you were going to do this. You said you were going to fix the barn. Fix the barn, Lord. <laughs> right? You said you were going to take out the trash. Take out the trash, Lord. I'm not saying we should, you know, you get it. Okay. Grumble like Christians. Uh, <clears throat> God remembers his covenant and he responds. Uh, it's there, the covenant is there. To, he invites us to do this. Uh, the dominion mandate is behind all this. Um, is, the dominion mandate is basically God saying, here's creation, it's yours, take care of it. 
right? Manage this well. Um, this is something that it's, was given to mankind, to human beings. This is, uh, so this is behind everything, is the dominion mandate. And we went over how individualism and collectivism were pursued. That's recorded in the book of Genesis. Um, individualism didn't work, so God wiped everything out with the flood. Everyone, is every man for himself. And then the collectivism of Babel, that failed um, <clears throat> because they were uniting in the name of man. And, and God put an end to that. And he demonstrated, here's how I want you to do it. It's like this. It, it, do it like this. And when he provided the covenant, he provided this pattern um, of deliverance, consecration, and mission. That's what he's doing in, this, in, in the book of Exodus, really, is demonstrating this is how covenant, my covenant with you uh, to manage the world. This is how you're supposed to take dominion. Um, deliverance, consecration, mission. Deliverance, consecration, mission over and over again. Out of Egypt to Sinai into Canaan. Out of Egypt to Sinai into Canaan over and over again. <clears throat> covenant renewal worship. Remember we talked about how covenant renewal worship is that pattern. Um, and that's why we worship as we do. We said last time when we were together, we said that selfishness and sin is our Egypt and the world around us is our Canaan. So life in the church is our Sinai where God speaks his word to us and trains us in righteousness. You are Israel at home. You are Israel at work. You are Israel in Walmart and McDonald's. If you are in Christ, you are Israel everywhere you go. <clears throat> um, I put Israel and Jerusalem, dot, dot, dot. I'm supposed to know what that means. Um, <laughs> life in the church is about preparing us as individuals and as a congregation to carry out the mission of saving the world. Okay, so life in the church is about preparing us as individuals and as a congregation to carry out the mission of saving the world. So we need to see in the Exodus story the pattern of life provided for us by God. Deliverance, consecration, mission. This is repeated and displayed for us new every Lord's Day in our gathered worship. So we're about to enter the deliverance chapters in the story in the book of Exodus, um, showing how just exactly how God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. In this story, there are two main ideas. Okay, so in, in the story of uh, Exodus, um, in the book of Exodus, there are two main ideas. That is, the covenant of Yahweh with his people and the power of Yahweh over the power of Egypt. Okay, so there's, there's two main themes here. The power of Yahweh, or the covenant of Yahweh with his people and the power of Yahweh over, over um, the power of Egypt, especially over their, um, everything that they worshipped. Okay, God's power over everything they worship. <clears throat> um, for us today, uh, it would be money, sex, technology, etc. Um, these are dominant things, but in their world, um, similar but different things we're going to take a look at. We've already looked at the covenant quite a bit, and we understand that God chose a people for himself, and that through them he would bless the world with light and life. That is how God planned to do this, to choose a people, to form them, to teach them, to train them, um, 
and through them to bless the world with light and life. This is the calling of the people of God from generation to generation. That is what we are supposed to be about. That is our business. That is our purpose. God created a seed and nurtured it. Now this, when I was studying for this, this image just came to me, and so I'm not going to develop it a whole lot, except it just seems to be a powerful image. God created a seed and nurtured it in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs, they're like a seed. He planted that seed in Egypt with Joseph, okay? He took that seed and he planted it in Egypt, in the dirt, and and Israel died there. So in a sense, there's there's a kind of death that happens when the Pharaoh comes up and doesn't know Joseph. And, um, and we hear uh, Israel in slavery and in bondage crying out to God for help. That seed died and it is about to be raised again in Moses. Moses' job is to bring them out, almost as if this thing is coming out of the dirt. Right? He's bringing the seed of Israel up out of the dirt. And it is becoming something. Um, In all of this, we are meant to see the sovereignty of God from beginning to end. It was he who made Israel. It was he who planted Israel in Egypt for the very purpose of delivering them from it. That's, That's important. God planned for them to be put into Egypt. He put them there um, in order to call them out from it. Come up, come out grow. Um, So the sovereignty of God. It is also he who frees them in spite of all the stubborn tyranny of Pharaoh. And this is still the way of God with us today. I think of how important um, the imagery of gardening is to understanding the gospel, um, to putting something um, in the ground and that it it has to die. Uh, The seed dies And um, unless the seed dies, the plant can't grow. So the thing's got to go into the ground um, and be covered and then up from the ground it rises. Um, And I was reminded of uh, Hosea 11.1 and and Matthew chapter 2, how he, uh, Matthew links these two together. Hosea says, um, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. I just imagine a farmer looking over the plant going, come out, come out. That's, I, I, I see that image pretty strongly. Gardening and the gospel. Yes, of course, the, the farmer has to wait, right? A gardener, you wait. You put the seed in and it takes a while to do this. But God designed this. Nature just preaches <clears throat> um, so clearly. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of the ground, of suffering and enslavement, I called my son. <clears throat> Seed time and harvest and all the growing in between. Uh, this is, God's just woven this into nature. You can't avoid it. Um, Seed time and harvest again and again and again and again. The cycle of nature is the thing that God is, is proclaiming to us. God forms us and plants us in our Egypt in order to grow a particular kind of crop. So God's growing different kinds of crops, okay? They're all crops, and he expects to reap a harvest. Um, so he plants you in one story, and he plants someone else in another story. 
some people get planted over in China, some people get planted over in America or in England or you know, Australia, wherever you, God plants you in different places, uh, but it's all a planting and he's growing things up. <clears throat> uh, so he forms us, he plants us in our Egypt uh, to grow a particular kind of crop. You are what you are by God's design. And by his call, your purpose is to glorify and enjoy him forever. Okay, so this, that's the overall picture. <clears throat> All of this uh, pertains to God's covenant with his people. Moses now begins to describe the power of Yahweh over the power of Egypt. And this is the beginning of God's deliverance. So let's see what the Lord says through the text today. Again, we're in Exodus chapter 7. Um, just a, a kind of a quick overview that... There are five chapters in Exodus to cover the ten plagues. Five chapters to cover ten plagues. Um, we're going to read each chapter, but we will study the passage as a whole as well. Exodus, from Exodus 7.8 to Exodus 11.10, that's where you're going to see the plagues. All the plagues of Egypt. Um, and um, most people can't really name all of them, but most of us can name a few. Uh, without even looking at the text, right? Um, <clears throat> so here's, here's how, kind of, I want to give you an idea of the structure here. Um, so the prelude to the ten plagues comes in our text today from uh, chapter 7, verses 8 through 13. Um, snakes. Snakes. Um, and then the rest of chapter 7 has to do with water being turned to blood. The Nile gets turned to blood. Uh, chapter, the first part of chapter 8 comes the plague of the frogs. Frogs. Plague of frogs. Uh, this, uh, the middle part of chapter 8 is gnats, or as the, I think the King James Version has it, is lice. Either way, small, irritating, very irritating, tiny bugs. Um, and then uh, the, the last part of chapter 8 is flies. So you got frogs, gnats, and flies. <clears throat> and then uh, chapter 9, we have livestock, the pestilence that uh, impacts the livestock, so uh, no more beef, okay, yeah, no, no steak. Uh, but your livestock dies, uh, which is really kind of hits you where, where it hurts uh, back then. Livestock was your, your livelihood, uh, the way you could eat and live. Um, boils. Um, Skin disease, right? And stuff coming up on your skin. A painful, painful skin disease. Um, hail is also in chapter 9. Hail from the sky. Um, just huge things of ice, tearing things up. And of course, there were no insurance companies then. So, uh, yeah. Um, and then, uh, chapter 10, you have locusts um, who come and eat whatever's left. And then uh, you also have darkness, that is the ninth plague. Chapter 11, we have the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Um, so this is the structure. Um, <clears throat> again, what's going on here, though, is not random. These plagues, God's not going thinking, hey, what's going to be really irritating to these people? You know, how can I just like really bug them? <laughs> Uh, he's not trying to bug them. Uh, he is, however, confronting their gods. He is confronting their gods. 
and he is displaying his power deliberately over their gods. And he begins with the snake. Uh, That's important. Um, When Moses first came to Pharaoh, we heard Pharaoh arrogantly ask, who is Yahweh? Moses came came and told him, hey, Yahweh says, let my people go. Um, And Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. That's from Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. By the end, he will know Yahweh, and he will let Israel go. He will change his mind about this. because he will know Yahweh. In fact, many others will know Yahweh because of what Yahweh does to Egypt. Um, In Exodus 7, 5, in our text today, um, or just before our text today, uh, God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. That that phrase is actually repeated quite a bit in Exodus. They will know that I am Yahweh. So God wants them to know, hey, that's me, I'm Yahweh, uh, I'm the one in charge here. Not, not just my name. You're not just going to know my name. You're going to know that I am over all of your gods. Right? That your gods cannot save you from me. Okay? <clears throat> um, but in Exodus 9, 16, we're told, <clears throat> God says this to Pharaoh, But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Not just in Egypt, but in all the earth. In Exodus 11, 7, uh, God says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In Joshua chapter 2, Verses 8 through 11, we we read this. Before the men lay down, she, being Rahab, this is where Rahab helps the, the spies, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your El, that's your God, he is El in the heavens, he's, he's God in the heavens, above and on the earth beneath. So when Joshua leads the Israelites into Canaan, they know about this. They've heard. God said to Pharaoh, yeah, I'm going to, so that the world may know. The world's going to know uh, how, they're going to know who I am and what I've done. <clears throat> they certainly knew in Canaan. Even 300 years later, In the days of Samuel and Israel's fighting with the Philistines, the Philistines recall that Yahweh, Israel's God, overthrew the Egyptians with terrible plagues, 1 Samuel 4, 8. 300 years later. So uh, 
this, this message goes out. God accomplishes his purpose. They fear Yahweh. <clears throat> Some initial observation. No, I think I need to back up a little bit first. Um, so I said something about the gods, the Egyptian gods. Each one of the plagues pretty much corresponds to some of the Egyptian gods. So the first, this prelude about the snakes, um, if you've ever seen any sort of depictions in movies or uh, anything like that in, of uh, pharaohs, you have probably seen the serpent on the front, the, the cobra on the, the front of the crown with the circular disc behind it. <clears throat> this was the symbol of Wajet. Wajet. Um, she was a, a snake god, one of the primal gods or goddesses of Egypt, uh, very ancient, uh, and a symbol of power in Egypt. And uh, God, God's choice of the snake here is deliberate. I mean, you know, why? why? You wonder, why did God choose, like, okay, I'm going to show my power by casting down a staff and having it turn into a serpent. Why? What's so important about that? We're going to look at that a little bit more in just a minute. Um, water turning to blood was a direct affront or a direct challenge to Hapi, Osiris, and Khnum. Khnum, K-H-N-U-M. Um, these were all uh, gods of the Nile, um, had power over life, the life-giving power of water. And um, so when, when, when God turns the water to blood, turns the Nile to blood, he's directly challenging Hapi, Osiris, and Khnum. Uh, the frogs. Hapi <clears throat> um, is also associated with frogs, and so is Hecate. Um, they are both fertility gods. I found out that, yeah, Hapi, <laughs> Hapi frogs. Um, so I, I found out that um, the frog was a symbol of fertility, both in Egypt and in Mesopotamia, around the rivers. Apparently, they associated frogs with fertility, probably because when the rivers flooded, they saw more frogs. I, I, I think that's the idea. But uh, frogs associated with fertility. Hecate is a goddess of fertility in Egypt. Hapi uh, as well. And um, so the frogs, you know, God's just saying, look, the frogs are mine, <laughs> right? They're not, they're not Hapis or Hecates. <clears throat> um, the gnats and the lice, or gnats or lice, whichever one it is, um, were an affront or a challenge to Seb, the Egyptian god Seb. Uh, he was an earth god, and uh, gnats were supposed to be in his power. Flies. Uachit. Uachit. Uh, the god Uachit was a fly god, basically. Uh, and flies were his domain. <laughs> uh, he was responsible for them, but God directly challenged that. Um, livestock, pestilence. Uh, in that, God is directly challenging Amun and Ptah, Ta, Ta, uh, Nevis as well. Three, three gods there in charge of uh, livestock and disease. Boils, um, let's see, Imhotep and Serapis. Uh, these, these gods were in charge, in charge of those things. Uh, health, basically. Uh, Imhotep especially. Imhotep was appealed to in embalming procedures and in all kinds of medical things, um, and I think Serapis was as well. Hail is a direct challenge to Isis and Nut and Shu. And the locusts, direct challenge to uh, Serapia, 
which was a, was a goddess in the form of a locust. Um, and darkness, a direct challenge to Ra, the sun god, and Aten and Horus, some of the major gods of the Egyptians. And the death of the firstborn, also a challenge to Osiris and Ra and pretty much all the gods of Egypt. <clears throat> so God chose these plagues as a direct confrontation to the gods and goddesses of Egypt. <clears throat> so some initial observations as I kind of looked over all of the, the whole plague story. <clears throat> Ten is the number of fullness of quantity in the Bible. Um, seven is the fullness of quality, right? So it's it, completion. Um, seven days is a, is a complete thing, and seven is a, is a number of perfection. Um, ten is a number of fullness of quantity, things you can count. There are ten plagues, and there are ten commandments. Thought about that? Ten plagues, ten commandments. You know, well, he chose that deliberately. <clears throat> These things are known throughout the world as testimony that Yahweh is the supreme God. Um, people, even atheists, who have never really looked much at the Bible, they have heard about the plagues um, and what God did to Egypt. The plagues are acts of judgment. That's important to know. Not just deliverance of his people, they are acts of judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah, and like the conquest of Canaan, when God sends his people to um, wipe out everyone in Canaan, that is an act of judgment. That is God acting, uh, carrying out an act of judgment, just as with these plagues and with Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> um, so with the plagues, God is delivering Israel. He is proclaiming his sovereignty, and he is making a distinction between his seed and the seed of the serpent. Remember that in Genesis? We talk Genesis 3.15. Um, you're going to... Uh, I'm going to do it, uh, set up enmity. Let's see, I think I should read it directly here. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent in the garden. I will put enmity, that's hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, um, okay, yeah, so uh, there's that enmity from the beginning between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And here in, uh, in Exodus, we're seeing this uh, portrayed. Uh, so again, why does God choose as a sign, the first sign, throw down your staff and it's going to turn into a snake, right? Um, it's, it's a bit of a setup really, because he knows what Pharaoh is going to do. <clears throat> um, okay, um, so God's making a distinction between his seed and the seed of the serpent. Egypt's attachment to the serpent is not by accident. Um, another observation is that there's a pattern to all the plagues. You'll find that two come with warnings, and then the third one without a warning. It happens again and again and again, so uh, you'll see that... For example, uh, water to blood and frogs both come with warnings. I'm warning you, this is what's going to happen. The gnats come without warning, no warning. And then the flies and the livestock, they come with warnings, but then the boils come with no warning. And the hail and the locusts come with warnings, and darkness comes with no warning. 
and then the, the death of the firstborn comes with a warning. <clears throat> um, so there's that pattern to it. I warned you twice, <laughs> right? And then third time, you're out. Um, so I also noticed the magicians can imitate the first two of the plagues, or three if you count the serpent thing. They can imitate the serpents, they can imitate the water to blood, and they're able to imitate the, um, the frogs, is it? Yeah, it's the frogs. Um, I think it's the frogs. Yeah. Um, they can imitate those, but when it gets to the gnats, they can't do it. And they say, oh, this is the finger of God, because we can't do this. <clears throat> um, yeah, three through ten are beyond them. Most of the plagues show up again in John's revelation. This is something else I observed. Ironically, as judgments against unfaithful Israel. When you read through the revelation, you see... Uh, at least two-thirds of these plagues come back as judgments against Israel um, in the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, remember that in, in uh, Revelation 11, 8, um, Jerusalem is referred to as Egypt. Uh, she who is called Sodom and Egypt. Um, is, is a re- it's the city where their Lord was slain. He's talking about Jerusalem, Jerusalem being called Sodom and Egypt. Um, so, um, okay, so another observation here from Exodus 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 3. Moses is great even in the eyes of the Egyptians. Um, in, in chapter 10, that's, that's pretty much what we're told. Uh, I don't know if Moses has just lost some of his modesty or what, but um, this is in the eighth plague. Um, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, uh, How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Um, okay, that's not the reference I wanted. Exodus 10.3 is not that. Well, <clears throat> there is a reference there in, in Exodus that says Moses was great even in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Egyptians knew that Moses was... was uh, Somebody. <clears throat> okay, uh, so as I pointed out, the, the plagues are against the gods of Egypt. Um, these plagues are not random troubles sent by God. They are direct references to Egypt's gods. In Numbers 33, verses 3 through 4, we read this. They set out from Ramses in the first month. This is about the Exodus itself when they get delivered. On the 15th day of the first month, On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. That's Numbers 33, 3 through 4. Uh, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Okay, Um, so our text in Exodus chapter 7 is, like I said, a prelude to the plagues because it begins Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh and the snakes, the snakes issue. <clears throat> okay, so in our text, we're told, first we're told how old they are, 80 and 83. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Okay, so this is a rare instance where God gives you a look at the script. He he tells you, Pharaoh's next line is, 
Okay? This is, when you go in to see Pharaoh, his words are going to be, prove yourselves by working a miracle. He, God tells Moses and Aaron, this is what he's going to say. How does God know that? Because he wrote the script, right? He <laughs> wrote the script. So here's the next lines. Pharaoh's going to say this. And when he says that, you say this, or you, you do this. Um, throw down your, tell, tell Aaron to throw down your staff. Um, so Aaron takes the staff and throws it down. The staff snake thing is no random design. Um, snakes are at the heart of Egyptian religion and power. Um, cast down your staff. Well, this is, a, this is a setup, and Pharaoh takes the bait. Um, because when Pharaoh sees this, Pharaoh, I think, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here. Pharaoh says, oh, snakes, we can do snakes. Because immediately he summons his magicians and his sorcerers. He doesn't even pause, doesn't hesitate, doesn't go, whoa, hey, that's pretty cool. You can turn a, a staff into a serpent. Um, but he says, no, we, we can do that. I've seen that done. I got, I'm going to call these guys, and they can do this. So, this is not a surprise to Pharaoh. Okay? Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of different takes on what's going on here um, with these magicians. Um, the magicians, uh, there's a group group labeled magicians, and it seems to be under them, within that group, are wise men and sorcerers. Magicians are made up of wise men and sorcerers. Uh, the same, these are the same guys who tried to interpret Pharaoh's dreams back in Joseph's day, over 200 years earlier. Remember those guys? Okay, they, they were not able to do so well. Um, there's a couple of Hebrew words here, uh, chartom, uh, chakam, and kashaf. I'm not sure if they actually come from Egyptian or really Hebrew, but... Uh, the Chartom are engravers and writers and scribes, but they got the name, they get, that, that name gets translated as magicians because in Egypt, uh, these people uh, were said to, it was these people who were said to have magical abilities. There is some kind of connection between writing and magic in the ancient world. <clears throat> um, and especially if you can engrave something on something else, um, but they're magicians. And then there are wise men who are, you know, they know things, and uh, often they're the same group of people. And then sorcerers. These tend to be like the, the guys who can uh, mix up chemicals. They, they mix, they, they, they make, quote-unquote, magic with stuff, right? And if you think about it, technology is not far removed, and pharmaceuticals, for that matter, <laughs> you know, making magic with stuff. Okay, uh, they make things happen with stuff, and so these are sorcerers. Um, so the people who did all the embalming stuff, for example, and uh, the priests and all that, uh, they they were often among these people. Moses would have been very familiar with these guys. He grew up. Remember, for forty years, Moses was in the house of Pharaoh. These people were probably around all the time. He knew these people. He probably even knew what they could do with their staves. Okay? So I don't think Moses was very surprised at this. <clears throat> um, the magicians did the same thing, the text says. And one of two things is going on here. And, and different scholars come out in different camps about this. Um, either the magicians are tapping into actual spiritual powers or being used by demons. Right? Either way, they're tapping into spiritual powers where they can actually turn a staff, a stick, into a snake. 
Okay, possible. I think it's more probable. Um, I'm not denying that the other one's possible. I'm, I'm just thinking, it seems to me, I'm going with this one. <clears throat> um, these magicians are practicing a rare form of snake handling that can still be done today. It's pretty cool if you research it a little bit. You can actually take, and it really only, it seems to work best apparently with the Egyptian cobra, um, that you can press the, the nape of the neck of the cobra and stretch it out, stiff. It's paralyzed. You can, you can paralyze the cobra by doing that. And apparently uh, this kind of thing happened with the Egyptian, uh, the people, in, the priests or whoever handled snakes in Egypt, um, and they could just take them out of their cloak and throw them down. You know, ah, look at that. And they throw it down, and of course, it's unparalyzed. It hits the ground, and uh, it begins to move. <clears throat> um, I'm thinking something like that happened. <clears throat> uh, I'm not saying it's, it's impossible that they were tapping into other spiritual powers, um, but it seems likely that this is something they were doing. So they took out the, you know, he, Pharaoh called for him, hey, I've seen this done before, right? So you guys come on out. See what Moses did? Again, I think Moses probably had seen this or heard of it before, so I don't think he was too surprised. Um, so they threw theirs down. Ha! Snakes. See? We can do that. That's nothing. All right? Except that Moses and Aaron's snake ate the other two. <laughs> right? So, again, I think this is such a setup. God set this up. <clears throat> right? Snakes. Boom. Yep. You think you can do snakes. Go ahead. Do your snake thing. Okay, there's your snake thing. Now my snake's going to eat your snakes, right? Your snakes are gone, okay? So um, interesting interesting power play right there. Um, Wajet, as I've said, uh, was a snake goddess, um, probably one of the oldest goddesses in Egypt. Um, she's associated with justice and time and heaven and hell and the protector of all of lower Egypt, um, and so the serpent, Wajet, became uh, the symbol of uh, royal authority in Egypt. And to have uh, Pharaoh's snakes be eaten up by Yahweh's snake was a definite sign. Um, and the, the symbol of uh, the, the snake with the sun behind it, it was a crown for Pharaoh, it was called the Uraeus. So that's what he wore as part of his crown. Um, <clears throat> this is certainly a contest between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay, uh, Pharaoh here being the seed of the serpent, and Moses and Aaron representing the seed of the woman. <clears throat> this is an introduction to the ten plagues. Yahweh confronts and defeats Egypt's oldest and highest goddess, Wajit. The stage is now set for Yahweh to demonstrate his power over all of Egypt's gods and goddesses. So, uh, I'm going to conclude this here by saying uh, Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the only God. The only God. As the divine storyteller, he has authority over all things. We have our Egypt too, and our Egypt has its gods and goddesses. If God were to arrange a similar story today, our plagues would be against sex, money, Cell phones, computers and electronics, health and beauty, food, vehicles, 
things of this sort. <clears throat> there would be plagues against those things. I can't imagine what would happen. Uh, but yeah, maybe some of it's already happening, for, for all we know. Um, <clears throat> while we may worship many things, he is the only one worthy of worship. He is the only one worthy of worship. How far had the Hebrews gone over 200 years towards becoming more Egyptian? Did they have snake and frog statues or paintings in their homes? It's 200 years. Long time. <clears throat> they were pretty popular in Egypt at one time. Um, hey, it's just a picture of a snake, really. I mean, you know, Yahweh doesn't mind. <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe. Uh, so, um, were they pursuing the same things the Egyptians were pursuing? The scriptures don't tell us this. We are told that many of them still cried out to God Most High, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, on the basis of his covenant with them. They wanted to be delivered from slavery. We have to begin to wonder how they responded to the idea of actually leaving Egypt and completely changing their way of life. Completely changing their way of life. When this is over, Egypt and the world will know who Yahweh is. And Israel will know that this is their God. <clears throat> Let's pray. Yahweh, you are infinite. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are the maker of heaven and earth and author of all that comes to pass. Help us to know you and to see your power and glory far above all of the other things that would be God's in our lives. Glorify your name in us even as you set us free from our Egypt. We pray this in the good and strong name of Jesus, and amen. Blessed be the living and active word of God. Amen.